Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast Stories. My name is Graham Brown. Today we're going to talk about IoT, the Internet of Things, and entrepreneurship. We're going to talk about building businesses, selling businesses, the side hustle, building and taking part in accelerators, pitching Mark Schuster, working with angels like Jason Calacanis, everything that's excited in the connected world in Asia. To do that, I'm joined by Carl Ellicott, co-founder of ReadWrite and Chief Labs Officer of ReadWrite Labs. Carl, welcome to the show. Thank you, Graham. Happy to be here. Well, I managed to get all of that out, and that's only sort of half the story that we've got to cover here with your background, because you've done so many different things. I mean, ultimately, you describe yourself as an entrepreneur, and we'll talk about your journey as an entrepreneur, what you've learned, and so on. Let's start at the top so people can understand, Carl, what ReadWrite is all about. Can you describe a little bit about what it is and what you do there? Yeah, sure. So ReadWrite uh, was the very first uh, media publication to come online back in 2003, uh, very focused on the raw guts and insights and how-to around innovation at the time. And uh, it was the first and leading uh, blog and publication online. Uh, fast forward to 2014, uh, we began doing the very first and largest conferences around Internet of Things and wearable technologies, and also learn, launched the very first uh, and largest accelerator all around the Internet of Things. And so today we focus on uh, the IoT community. Um, providing content around IoT in the connected world and helping startups um, around the world build successful and great companies uh, in the Internet of Things. Mm. So when you started out, your focus was on innovation. So that's quite a wide remit, isn't it? But how did you then refine that and be, you know, the leading publication for IoT? How did that all happen? Yeah, so when when we began, uh, you know, I think um, you know back in 2003 there was so much going on when it came to technology. Um, you had kind of the the dot com uh, era really in mm. force. Um, you know, new different types of technologies, products, mobile versus um, you know web 2.0 and social media. All of these things really starting to gain gain traction, and trying to cover that, uh, as you said, is is very vast. And so we continue to do so and watch how things trended and progressed over time and really got to a point where we saw a convergence of all of these different industries, all of these different technologies or innovations coming to a point. And that point really led into what today is now called, you know, the Internet of Things or the connected world. Um, and it encompasses so much. And now we look at innovation as the way products move and progress and look at IOT as that industry that um, really touches everything we do in our life, in our work. Uh, every industry is affected by the IOT or by the Internet of Things. And so because of that, we've put a heavy, heavy focus on mm. kind of owning that, uh, that area. Yeah. When you started that out and when you set up Read Write, what was the the goal then because if we sort of wind that back to 2003 as you said it was kind of like the second coming of the internet industry isn't it i mean 2001 we'd all kind of been smarted by 
the, the, that, you know, the implosion of dot-com industry, right? And 2003, things started to come back around, and mobile was a key driving factor in that as well, wasn't it? There's was a lot of hardware now getting yeah. involved in innovation. But people were still remembering, and by 2000, people, 2003, people still had in their mind PetSmart and Webvan and all those huge failures. <laughs> so their appetite maybe wasn't as... You know, they may be a bit more risk adverse back then towards innovation than they are today. I don't know. You were there right in the middle of things in 2003. In was it in San Francisco at the time? Tell us about what the attitude was like then and what the scene was like back then. Yeah, so I have to give a lot of credit back to the uh, the founder of, of ReadWrite.com, the publication side, um, Richard McManus, who um, really wanted to start highlighting um, how to build and what the ins and outs were of this technology and of these innovations. Mm. Um, at the time, no one was covering this. No one was talking about it. It was just a ton of information, almost information overload, if you will, of something new popping off every day. Um, and from my perspective, both in um, the Midwest and on the West Coast, um, was a new world was being opened to everybody. And it was a world focused around being connected. Uh, at that time, it was you know really the internet and moving into kind of web 1.0 and 2.0 with social media, providing people providing the opportunity for people to be connected in a way that they never had been. Um, you know whether that was through social media, whether it was new technologies uh, like mobile, um, it was starting a craze that would drive more opportunity, more revenue, more investment uh, than we had really seen in technology in years prior. Um, even with the dot-com boom, there was a ton of money, there was a ton of successes and a ton of failures, but this was something different. Mm. Um, this had, if you will, kind of meat to it. Um, it wasn't just uh, a web domain, it wasn't just a piece of hardware, it was, it was something more. It was truly data-driven uh, in a lot of cases. And <laughs> that new world being opened up uh, started to provide insights and started to provide guidance into new products and where industries were going to go, how consumers would look at products, how they would buy, uh, and just change the entire interface uh, for where we are today. Uh, and that's one of the things that got me excited, just remembering the social media boom, if you will, um, is not that I could talk to you, uh, you know, halfway around the world, but that we could share information we could build something and not have to be in the same location and together generate data that we could use to improve or better a product for our customers um, and maybe even create new additional products out of it as well. So you mentioned a key phrase there, which I want to sort of pull out a little bit. You talk about a new world opening up because this is an interesting theme with you, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> bouncing around with your, your story as well. I don't want to preempt you all the, the content coming up, but your your sort of focus on Asia as well now, especially moving into the quote unquote new world, new territories as well. That's fascinating. But you know, I'm just wondering what it is about those industries that excite you, and also importantly, you know, your success in that in though that space. What is it that you think you do or see differently to the to everybody else because obviously a lot of people get successful just because they're there early and they you know manage to establish themselves and plant their flag and they you know the rising tide raises all boats but 
you know, to have that repeat success for somebody like yourself is what is it that you think when you see this rapid change and you see some a shift happening which other people haven't yet got into when you like for example two thousand and three with the web or now with IoT? Yeah, you know, it's a it's a great question and I, I, I wish there was a a secret sauce that I could give to everybody. Um, but I think it was is really just starts when I was young. Um, you know, when I was young, I got into technology very, very early um, and fell in love with it um, and wanted to do nothing but consume every bit of technology, uh, innovation, anything that looked like it was going to be uh, something new and, and futuristic. Mm. And from that young age, um, I, I just literally consumed everything I could. And because of that, I started researching, um, getting involved uh, kind of dabbling in several different industries, which really probably gave me a lot of different knowledge. Uh, and from that, I was under could understand how to piece it together and start to look at different industries and how they may work together and how they may come together. Right. Um, you know, some of my experience that um, would be a little odd is you know I, I worked at a fashion uh, institute or university, um, and do, there. Uh, you know, saw the opportunity for QR codes, um, augmented reality, um, you know, saw the opportunity to bring in, uh, you know, social media and uh, new ways of web development where other people weren't yet jumping in on that. And I don't know if it's, to be very honest, if it's just uh, luck, um, the way my mind works, or uh, just all the education that I try to consume myself with. But when it came to IoT, uh, that one's a little bit easier. Um, because I had been in all these worlds, I'd bounced between hardware, software, you know, social media, uh, entertainment, uh, media, uh, events, you name it. I'd been in all these different areas and watched it all start to come to one area. And a lot of that was all focused around data. And as I saw that, um, my co-founder and I were talking about this kind of convergence of industries and technologies and all of it being centered around data. Um, and that's when both of us realized the power that was going to create both wearables and then the internet of things industry. Um, so it was just kind of keeping a notch, a watchful eye and educating myself throughout the process. Yeah. I mean, going back to your point in terms of what it is, well, the secret source, we don't know, but there's something curious, isn't there? I mean, you talk about how your mind works and there's something which you see, and you, you have this this history as well, where you, you've you say bounce between many industries like publication, you know, publishing or fashion, and so on. And you know, if you look at people's career paths, they're either the type where somebody has just focused purely on a very narrow band and been very very good at that narrow band, like for example, being an engineer and becoming a software engineer and just focusing on engineering all their life and building up that experience. Or, like yourself, you, you have this sort of general knowledge, right? This generalist approach, which is you see these patterns between these industries. And that then means that when something comes along and connects them all, like IoT or the internet or blogs, you know, that's something really powerful to you. Because now you can see a, a pattern that worked in publishing, a pattern that worked in 
fashion, a pattern that works in the internet and connect all this thing with this technology, I think that must be really exciting. So if you indulge me a little bit, because I want to go back to that point where you say you were very young and consuming technology. I mean, every kid uses technology, right? But what were you doing? Because I don't want to put you on the couch here and analyze you, but I'm just so curious, right? What were you, the younger car, what were you doing with technology? Yeah, so I, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of stories I could tell from uh, when my uh, lovely parents put me in a robotic programming camp when I was really young to um, when I decided to really um, start my very first business. And that came from me wanting my first computer and my parents telling me, well, uh, to do so, you need to get a job. You need to, uh, you know, make money. And so I did and made a little bit of cash to figure out uh, all the pieces and components I needed to uh, get to build a computer to me buying a, you know, Hewitt Packard or a a compact or a Mm -hmm. Dell computer off the shelf to throw some uh, legacy names out there just wasn't as fun. I, I wanted to understand the raw guts of how this technology worked. And so um, as I did that, uh, I put my first computer together, I hit power and nothing happened. So I started tweaking with it and learning how to diagnostic. And then next thing you know, uh, I realized I had something. And so I started working my, my first, first company in building hardware uh, around desktop, laptops, computers, and network infrastructures for people within my city, then within the community, and then within the states and kind of a, a tri-state area hmm. uh, at its peak. And what was one of the big drivers outside of technology is that there were a lot of people uh, in the area I grew up in who wanted a computer but couldn't afford it, um, maybe had never really had a reason or understood why they needed a computer, and all of a sudden they did. Um, and I was able to you know, not just build brand new computers, but take uh, old computers apart and start putting them back together um, with different components and providing them at a discount uh, to someone to have their very first computer. Mm. Uh, Carl, yeah. I think it's important that you tell the listeners how old you were when you started this business because that kind of puts it into context, right? Yeah, so I was about 14 um, years old and I did that almost all the way through college. Wow. Um, yeah, and it was... You know, it started off as a hobby, and, and then it got real. Um, and during that time, I bounced into software, um, working with web design, um, and really got deep into creating websites for you know local small businesses, for friends. Um, I remember in college before Facebook, um, before we had access at our university for it, um, my friends and I would want to share pictures, would want to talk about, you know, what was up and coming. And so mm. I built a website for us to share that information. Uh, <laughs> Here we go. Yeah, <laughs> the Facebook then, that never was. Yeah. And then Facebook popped up and I was like, oh, thank gosh, I don't have to <laughs> take years to upload these photos. Right. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Zuckerberg. But, um, yeah, so for me, it was at a young age, it was, it was diving into to hardware and I was lucky and fortunate enough to, um, have people in my life, very much my family, who encouraged me and influenced me um, to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, my father, my grandfather, my great grandfather, all of our family have entrepreneurship in them. And uh, it was um, a lot of that support that had me get started young and continue throughout. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? When you talk about the 
the family backgrounds as well. I mean, the, you know, families come in different stripes and so on. But you know, that lesson that your parents taught you that okay, I want a computer, and they said to you, you have to get a job. I mean, I'm <laughs> curious now, kind of how do you think that was sort of the genesis of your entrepreneurialism? Is that do you think that lesson had taught you a lot? I mean, it seems such a small, innocuous thing. But, you know, we're talking about what you've achieved since then with Read, Write and so on, that, you know, how that sort of impacted you at an early age. And all, because it's so important, isn't it, in terms of how do we nurture that kind of talent in the future? People think, oh, you've got to put them through an MBA program and so on. But maybe it's those small touches like that that have a real impact on people. Yeah, so that I would say that was actually the second. The first was um, when I was very young, my, my father had a a great job, but... He was happy, but not happy. And he wasn't happy because his passion, the thing he's always wanted to do, wasn't his job. Uh, and so I was about, I think, 10, uh, maybe 11 years old, so a few years before my first company. Um, my dad left his paycheck um, with uh, three kids, um, a wife, and a new house being built, right. um, moving to a new city all at once. Um, and remembering what he did and knowing that he gave everything up um, to do his passion was the first real indicator of this is something that I should pay attention to. Yeah. And it's going to sound crazy to listeners, but truly um, it's something that I caught very early. And the second was, yeah, my parents telling me I had to go get a job to, to, to get something. Uh, you really learn the value of a dollar and, and learning that at a young age, uh, I worked my ass off to get that computer. <laughs> I bet, yeah. I, I still have it at my father's house today. Uh, it still works. Um, and I'm terrified to ever let it go because you know, every piece, every component within that thing, um, I worked so hard to get. And so between the, the sacrifices my family made and, and showed me I could, and encouraged me that I could make two to, you know, being taught that early lesson of the value of the dollar just mm. changed my my world. And of course, other things would influence it later down the line as well, but definitely the start. Yeah. And it, it's interesting to see how that sort of conveys in now you are actively advising startups. So you have Read Write Labs, which is your accelerator program, right? For yep. IoT and connected world startups. So I imagine you have a lot of young people coming through, not necessarily young people, but I suppose young in business is the word I'm looking for, that you know, people coming through the accelerator don't have your kind of experience. You know, do you look for that kind of hustle that you had, you know, the value of a dollar? Because how do you find that? Is that important in today's startups? Do you value that when you are deciding whether or not that person can come into your accelerator or that team of people, you know, oh yeah, that's great. They had that sort of early experience and maybe they haven't been exposed to it and so on. How, how do you put a value on that? How do you quantify it? That's a great question. I mean, uh, you know, in terms of young entrepreneurs, we actually had our youngest entrepreneur was just over 14 years old. Wow. Um, and are you serious uh, in your, in your accelerator yeah. program? Yeah, so he, he started a company uh, out of Dallas and uh, was a brilliant kid. Um, and the second youngest that we had in San Francisco was 17. And I won't mention his name because, well, his teachers, his teachers know at this point, but he would actually uh, get a note to get out of school 
to come to the accelerator to learn and to hear people speak. <laughs> I saw him more than his high school teachers did as senior. That's uh, and he's now very successful. And um, you know, we've had people all the way up to their mid sixties join yeah. the accelerator. And so, while age is important, you know, to your point, the hustle is great, but I, I think people misdefine it. And for me, and for us on uh, the accelerator side what I really look for is, is dedication. Hmm. Uh, you know, the hustle will come a part of it in terms of, you know, finding your first dollar, um, you know, raising money, uh, getting your first uh, customer, putting your name out there. All of those pieces come into play and not every CEO is made for that. Sometimes their co-founder is, um, or vice versa, but really it's, it's a team that's dedicated to see out what they and us are investing into. Hmm. Uh, you know, when you come to any accelerator, ours or, or any other others in the world, if you're not dedicated, you don't really have plans to give everything you have to see that idea work um, until it doesn't. And even then trying, you know, 15 more times to make sure that it really doesn't, uh, you really need to take a moment and pause and understand if an accelerator is right for you. How do, how do you measure that dedication for somebody who runs an accelerator every guy who rocks up and does the pitch to you is going to tell you that they're never going to give up and this is their thing and this is their game changer and so on what are the signs that you look for beyond that sort of veneer of what saying what you want to they think that you want to hear so it's interesting i mean you know i hear a lot of startup pitches uh countless at this point and um generally you have a pretty good sense if someone's truly dedicated or if they're not. And you can tell by the way, maybe not necessarily how they pitch the company because everyone should pitch it as if they are truly dedicated, but it's what their needs are. Where are their weaknesses versus their strengths? So if they need you know, five team members, if they're leaning on the incubator or accelerator program to really run their company versus asking for bits and pieces, uh, that's a big red flag. Um, you know, if you want a co-founder, let the accelerator know you need a co-founder. Um, a lot of programs, including us, have great networks and programs to help you find a co-founder. Um, if you're looking for resources, you're looking for support, you're looking to grow or scale your company, then an accelerator is, is right for you. And for me, you're going to pitch me your product. You're going to tell me how great and wonderful it is, as you said. Awesome. I want that. I'm also going to determine as soon as you say that whether or not it has a market and if that market is growing or not growing. And if either case, how do you fit in that and can you push it to its next level or bring it back to improving? And are you and your team the ones to do it? Uh, And if not, um, what are the pieces that you're missing? And if it's very clear that one, you have an additional job. And so most entrepreneurs will either reveal that or a quick Google Mm. (laughs) and LinkedIn. Mm. Uh, You know, we do our due diligence just as much as others. And so we can tell that kind of stuff. And it's, it's okay if you need to do something to pay the bills. Um, But at some point you've got to make that switch and you've got to be fully dedicated uh, to see this project through. And even if it's for three months, six months, um, whatever it may be, you got to give it your all. Yeah. Uh, Exactly. And you speak with authority because you've been there, right? You've taken those kind of risks in your life as well. It's not like you are a 
you know, somebody who's a career VC, you know, mm-hmm. who's done the MBA and then goes and works for a VC, all respect to those guys, but they come from a different background, right? They don't have that kind of experience of what it was actually like to, you know, risk and stake your own money, your own reputation and so on. So let's talk about, I mean, you, you mentioned um, this idea about a product or an idea having a market. And let's put some context on this, is that you've, with your accelerator program and your, you know, your projects, you've helped raise over 130 million in venture funding. So for the kind of companies you advise, and obviously you've been in raises for your companies as well, you've also sold companies. So you kind of have a good understanding of what the market wants and what gets funded. So let's put this in the conversation of IoT. So... I mean, IoT can be so many different things. It could be smart cities, connected cars, quantified self, agritech, whatever. So if somebody walks through the door, is there certain things right now that really excite you? And I want to bring this conversation to Asia as well. And we talk about, you know, what you're doing in Asia as a part of your global domination plan. But, you know, what are there particular IoT applications which you feel are hot right now and are more you know, likely to get funded? Yeah, so I think there's definitely a few markets. Now, whether they get funded, or, you know, is going to be totally dependent on, you know, the full idea, the team, um, the business model, uh, just as, a, as a, a guide as we go down this path. But um, mm. in terms of the industry, uh, I think you, of course, got everybody and anybody talking about fintech specifically around blockchain uh, and all of the many applications that it can be used for, um, including throughout IoT with, um, you've got smart contracts, you have engagement with cities, you have engagements with, um, we're we're talking about cars now at this point. Um, So blockchain is probably one of the hottest. Mm. Um, Next is connected car. Uh, I think that the connected car industry is actually one of the largest opportunities that people are starting to recognize now. Um, and that's because you have the physical car itself. You have all of the components within the car. You have the car on the road and the data that it can collect from there. You have the individual in the car. You have self-driving. You have the maintenance you have so many pieces of that ecosystem alone that truly have not been disruptive or disrupted in decades. Um, you know, car maintenance is actually one of the fastest growing trends um, right now in IoT because no one's touched the market for decades and some places are still using paper and pencil right, when you yeah. take your car to get it fixed. Um, so you've got blockchain, you've got connected car, you have, of course, smart cities. Um, you know, there's a big conversation around more people moving into cities and then moving back out to the suburbs. But the cities themselves have to become more intelligent from the energy sector to public utilities to uh, the way our homes are built all the way um, down into uh, the materials that we're using as well. Um, and then... Uh, the next that I've actually been very bullish on for a while that's starting to get a lot of noise, uh, actually the two is uh, space, mm. so space technology, so frontier, kind of futuristic things, 
And then agriculture technology. Mm. We have a big food problem that's on the forefront of us here in the coming decades. And right now, um, you have farmers and entrepreneurs and corporations of the like focusing on how do we do things like vertical farming? How do we um, grow food you know, within our homes? How do we create uh, sustainable food sources as the population continues to grow? Um, so those are just a few of the areas that are getting me excited. Yeah, let's talk about those in the context of Asia now, because that becomes really mm-hmm. interesting, doesn't it? And just pick one out. Yeah. I, want, I want to talk about agritech as well, because I think, you know, when you put that in the context of Asia and billions, that, that's really fascinating, right? Mm-hmm. But let's go back to the cars yeah. example. There was, I saw something recently that, um, uh, you know, the mayor of New York, Bloomberg, he's launched a project to get cities ready for autonomous vehicles okay and Mm -hmm. you know the thing about the states as well is they all kind of move at different speeds don't they especially when it comes to the legislation side of things because it's all localized isn't it this state has this legislation you know california it might be different and that's a real challenge isn't it if you're a manufacturer or any kind of iot provider you're going to have all these states moving at different speeds so now Think about that compared to, let's say, Asia, where you're really expanding out your footprint, Hong Kong, China, and so on. How do you see that happening? If we talk about connected cars in itself, the natural reaction would be, well, that's all going to come out of either where the automotive bases are. So it could be Germany, it could be Detroit, for example, or where you know, the most high tech is. So it's going to be you know, where Apple is based or where Tesla are based. You know, you're going to be based in California somewhere. Those are going to be the hubs for connected cars in the future. So what do you see where you are in your vantage point in Asia now? What excites you there when you think about connected cars? And I'm curious in in terms of, you know, the way things are rolled out there, because they kind of happen at a different speed in Asia, right? In terms of, right, we're going to do this. It's all going to happen. They do it, right? And then also in terms of the innovation side of things. So it's interesting you you mentioned New York, um, mostly because in the U.S. you had cities fighting over the chance to be the first, uh, you know, kind of connected car or leading self-driving state Mm. or city. Um, You had Columbus, who received a very large grant from the Department of Transportation. You had one of the very first um, kind of fake cities created uh, in my hometown in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and the greater Detroit area. And that continued its wave through Pittsburgh into um, the rest of the country to the valley where uh, in Silicon Valley, automotive companies were setting up new offices, um, kind of innovation uh, West Coast offices, if you will, um, to meet with entrepreneurs to learn about the latest in technology so they could relate it back to their headquarters in the Midwest, um, start getting the jump on each other. And what happened was this natural effect going both east and west, <clears throat> you know, east towards Europe and uh, the companies there. So you got BMW, uh, you have, uh, who's got a huge connected car focus. You have Renault and Nissan who are working on open source vehicles uh, and self-driving cars. Then you go west towards Asia and you've got um, this very unique uh, battle, I will say, in that um, 
each area where, where cars are, are relevant for their owners, everyone is hungry for self-driving. Um, but you also have a very predominant uh, industry around taxis. Hmm. Uh, and so, you know, that's going to be a very big cultural shift, which is going to relate back to what's happening in New York. But here for connected cars, you've got Shanghai, um, which is becoming a connected car hub for Asia. Uh, and it relates back to what's happening in Silicon Valley and Sacramento to what's happening in you know, the Midwest, where they have created just outside the city, uh, right around the original airport, a whole uh, city called uh, Automotive City. Hmm. And it is a fake city with offices of all of the auto companies and various manufacturers surrounding it, where they are testing uh, different connected car technologies when it comes to uh, mesh networks where cars are able to communicate and talk to each other, um, to preventative maintenance, to self-driving uh, and beyond. And what's wild is you have corporations or high-tech companies starting to get involved. Mm. You have someone like Baidu, who is focusing around self-driving, both on the hardware and the software side. You have CES Asia this year that was, for 2007, was heavily focused around connected car. Uh, it was probably, in my opinion, the most dominant focus of the entire event, mm. uh, both in uh, Shanghai and then pretty well highlighted in, in Vegas uh, as well. And so I think it's going to the industry itself will start to shift and decide how it will move forward country by country and city by city. But there is going to be quite a battle around um, the predominant industry again, which is, is, is taxi driving and how does self-driving play into that on a mass level versus an individual level like yourself and I, who could go purchase a Tesla uh, in our dreams, but we could go purchase a <laughs> Tesla and, um, you know, starts with self-driving that way. And, yeah. And how do you feel about an American entrepreneur being in Asia? And especially, you know, you've got your footprint in Hong Kong and in China where you're establishing your accelerators. You know, when you see, you know, you've been in these situations before, whether it was building PCs way back for companies who first realized they had to get on board with PCs or whether it be sort of at the very, very early stages of social media or getting into IoT. Now you're in Asia. Do you see something which is not going on if you go back to the valley? You know, you talk about, you know, these building these cities where you can just throw in these huge multi-billion dollar organizations, almost like because they have a blank slate to work with, do you see anything going on at the moment which, you know, if, if, an, if an American entrepreneur came out in your footsteps and had a look at what was going on, they'd be really surprised by it. Especially somebody who came from San Francisco, for example, who really is, you know, at the, you know, the hub of entrepreneurial activity in the internet scene, right? Yeah, I think around uh, Connected Car, I mean, one of the biggest opportunities for entrepreneurs in the U.S. to come here for is preventative maintenance or maintenance. Um, I mean, you've got a large, growing um, kind of middle class that's starting to drive, starting to have car ownership, and there is going to be a large number of maintenance um, shops and and uh, individuals, and all that's going to have to be tracked. All of that's going to have to have an infrastructure behind it. 
And so if you want to kind of get in on the ground level and not re redo a very established and archaic system, mm. Asia is the perfect place. Um, but if you're an entrepreneur in general, wanting to come to Asia and follow in mine or anyone else's footsteps, you know, some of the things that you're going to see is you're going to see fast pace like you've never seen before. Um, industries and um, technologies and companies move at a pace unlike anywhere else. Hmm. Um, uh, whether it comes to opening up you know, new offices, to launching new products, to um, getting the hands uh, uh, or getting their product delivered in the hands of consumers and consumer adoption, it's at a rate that will just blow someone's mind. Um, at the same time, you know, coming here specifically from the Valley, you've got investors all around you. They're everywhere. Um, you know, money seems like it's endless, even though it's, uh, it's still very specific, uh, driven around, uh, certain types of ideas and, um, those with proof and traction here, there are a ton of investors. There are a ton of investors looking at investing in great quality companies and they're everywhere. Um, and they actually want to deploy capital. Hmm. Uh, and then I think the third thing that people will be really shocked by is the amount of support um, that's truly given by the local governments. Uh, you know, the benefits, the uh, investment matching programs to office space to uh, initiatives around specific areas in the Internet of Things and the relationships along with um, other benefits that they can offer is just, again, um, not to repeat myself, but it's it's unlike anywhere else you've seen. And um, for an entrepreneur coming over here, that can be a little overwhelming um, and exciting. So for any of those who are looking to, I mean, you know, come here, find someone who's been here and done it before that you can learn the lessons, you can be guided through those processes. And it's, uh, it'll feel like, a new emerging valley, uh, something that's different um, and offers its own unique uh, spin on what uh, kind of the new connected or globalized world that we're moving into has to offer. Yeah, I mean, it's so exciting, isn't it? And for somebody like you who thrives in those environments, you must feel alive there that you, you know, even to visit a place like Shenzhen, I don't think most people even know or even heard of Shenzhen, right? But to see it and actually appreciate what is going on there, it's just phenomenal, isn't it? It's, and what they've also got planned for the city, it's really just a, indicative of what is happening there. And I'm not saying it's better or worse or anything. It's just, you know, to broaden people's horizons and see, you know, beyond what people, you know, assume is just the normal sort of entrepreneurial world, right? There's a whole big world out here and people would be surprised to come and sample that and not be afraid as well to take a leap and get involved. And obviously there's people like Kyle out there as well who can help people get settled and get established. And Kyle's, you know, your ecosystem I think is great, especially if you're in the IoT space, that's something that people can plug into, right? And I think that is of a real bonus because you're not only bringing that ability to 
plug into a wider ecosystem, you get access to that knowledge that you can bring from other markets and so on. And that's something that's been your theme, isn't it? Coming from these different markets, different verticals, you can see patterns which will work in something where, you know, maybe you're new to that market as well. And that's of real value because you don't necessarily bring in a legacy way of thinking. So that's Carl Ellicott, everybody. Carl, I'm sure, pretty sure that people are going to want to find out more about you, reach out to you. So share with us a few links where we can start. Sure. Um, you can find me on uh, all social media. Uh, Twitter is probably the best way, uh, at um, Kyle, K-Y-L-E, Ellicott, E-L-L-I-C-O-T-T. Um, you can reach out to me and visit readwrite.com or readwritelabs.com uh, and uh, easily can find me and connect with me there or on LinkedIn as well, uh, LinkedIn at Kyle Akut. Awesome. And Carl, I think we've only scratched the surface really of your story. There's so much we didn't talk about today, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, with the way things are going with you at ReadWrite and your sort of your plans for Asia there's a lot more there's more chapters to be written isn't there so what i'd really like is you come back on the show at some point in future sometime next year and give us an update let us know what the what's going on and what you sort of learned in that journey i would be more than honored and i think it'll be fun to kind of recap the movement and traction of the entire uh, bay area both in san francisco and also here in china uh, and what's all going on and if anybody's in Shenzhen, they're more than welcome to visit me or in Hong Kong or San Francisco. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.